two, one. Hello and welcome folks to another edition of A Humanistic Perspective. As always, I am your host, Chad Castillo, and today I have the fortunate privilege of sitting down with John Lee. John Lee by trade is a product manager and as of most recently is the founder of Custom Mobile App, and I look forward to having this conversation. John, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chad. All right. Yeah. So I'd like to start by going back, if you would. Uh, could you share maybe a little bit about your upbringing? Um, I love to get to know from a parental relationship and cultural standpoint how it was, but also um, from an interpersonal standpoint, how was schooling for you? How was the uh, emotional landscape of your life at your younger years? And where was your brain going with what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Okay. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> that's very rich. So I'm a Korean American. I was born in the U.S. My parents are from Korea, first-generation immigrants. So that's kind of the cultural background. Beautiful. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, so that's a religious background, and grew up in the suburbs, suburbs of New York City. So okay, very nice. Um, geographically, that's where I'm from. Let's see. Uh, so growing up as an immigrant kid. Um, there was a, maybe a culture clash of sorts. I had to navigate between two different cultures, American and Korean, but it was all I knew. So I, that didn't really come across to me um, as I'm thinking through it now as sure. all that difficult or strange. Um, now, was, emotionally, uh, was, Korean or, was Korean or English your first language? You don't mind me asking. Korean was, was my first language. That's okay. yeah, Very we nice. learned that at home. And then I, I, I do remember going to ESL at uh, first and maybe even into second grade. So that was something that um, I didn't think about. But yeah, I do remember going into ESL classes, being pulled out from the normal class to go to a separate class for a little while sure. and really disliking that, <laughs> really resisting that. And then eventually, I guess I grew out of that. So um, yeah, nice. that was that was my growing up years. And did you go to public school and or to a private school? Public school, yeah, all through elementary, middle, high school. Were you ever bullied a lot? Were you a popular kid? What was sort of, what, what were you maybe quiet, more reserved? I know myself, I was more of a musician. I just tend to stay around those people and that was just sort of my mm -hmm. niche. What was uh, that like for you? Yeah, I was definitely not a popular kid um, and I was definitely shy and quiet. Um, I wasn't bullied. I think because, you know, I've always been kind of average, I think average size, average height. Um, I did play sports, so I wasn't I'm like average strength, I guess. So I wasn't ever really bullied. I didn't have sure. that kind of a problem. I mean, they were mean kids, but um, they didn't push me around because I didn't let them push me around, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I didn't have a lot of friends either. I wasn't super popular. I had a small group of friends all throughout my school years. So unremarkable in that way. Sure. Did you, what were you fond of? What were you finding yourself going towards? Were you, did you have an enact ability for math? Were you maybe more interested in the arts? What was sort of, I guess, keeping you focused or like, where did you think you were seeing yourself going career-wise based on what you were doing activity-wise? Yes. So I think I have to admit, um, growing up, uh, I was pretty, I was on autopilot for a lot of that time. I don't think I actually woke up to myself until my, probably my late 20s. So really growing up is pretty much a blur. I never considered myself good or really gifted in any particular area. I did well, well enough in school, but I didn't really consider that a particular talent. I had interests. I mean, they were kind of, you know, off a little bit. My interests were... Um, being outside, I loved animals and kind of learning about biology and nature. I was always yeah. oriented in that direction. So I always thought, you know, probably a good career choice would be to become a veterinarian. I kind of married my interests in animals and biology and also helping and serving the community in some way. So that was the idea I had going into college. Okay. Um, and where did I'm you not, end up attending? I went to Cornell, which is a really good school for that. So I majored in animal science there, and that was the plan going in. But I think after my first semester, I decided that's it. That was a mistake. I'm not going to be a veterinarian. And but I did keep the major. It was a very flexible major, and even in university, I was pretty lost in terms of what I really wanted to do. So I just kind of defaulted from going down that veterinary track to just pre med. Mm 
And sure. so following the pre-med track throughout university, not super passionate about that, the bio background and the bio classes I was taking. So really floated in that way for a long time. Mm. I didn't now, end up going to medical school, but yeah. Sure. Sorry uh, to cut you off, but being older now, looking back at your time and studying biology, what did you find to be uh, personally the most fascinating or the most creative aspect of working in the field of biology? I don't. I can't remember like a creative aspect of it, but I do. I do remember really enjoying it. I still love science. It's it's a passion of mine. I love understanding how things work, how the body works, especially. So getting that background, I don't regret getting that education and that bioscience background. It's not what I ultimately pursued career-wise, but it is still uh, an important interest in my life. Sure. So at, at you finish up at Cornell. Where are you going? Because you said, you know, sort of you were, weren't really aware of what you wanted to do. You weren't ready to go down the pre-med route the rest of the way. So what, what was going on in John's life? Well, I was still going down the pre-med route when I graduated. So I worked for a year at a medical laboratory, getting some more experience under my belt before applying to med schools. Um, I did end up applying, but in that gap um, between applying and then getting the results, I decided I'd just take a little adventure. So I went to Korea. Oh, wow. uh, I'd never been on my own. So I just, you know, I've got two months. I went, um, I had a friend or a friend of a friend who was living out there doing some social work. So I thought maybe I can connect with him help help him out with some of his social work and and then come back and attend school, go on with the rest of my life. But I ended up staying there for over two years. I really enjoyed the work I was doing with the children in um, foster care. I was teaching English, but also just getting to know the kids and many of them became my students. So um, yeah, so that was a definitely a pivoting point in my life and in my career while I was out there. I decided to go to grad school for something else entirely. Um, so to get my MBA in social policy and management, because I was in the social work uh, area. I really enjoyed what I was doing. And I thought maybe I should go back to school, get some more training in administration in this area. So that's why I applied and got accepted um, to a grad program at Brandeis. And I came back to the States to attend that. Wow. I wanted to ask while you're in uh, Korea, what do you notice as is the, biggest like infrastructure, economics, and just general uh, living style differences from being here in America? Uh, well, I was in Seoul. I think okay. the city itself is you know, much newer than the cities here in the U.S. So a lot of the facilities and infrastructure is much newer and better maintained, I would say, than in New York City, for example, which is what I was used to. Hmm. Uh, How yeah, is it's a politics? very tech forward. You know, I didn't quite follow politics in Korea. I have to say, I don't know very much about that. Okay, sure. Um, do you have any stories or monuments or places or like day trips you took the kids on or that you went on yourself that you would recommend if, if I were to visit or anyone else? I don't know if I'd recommend it, but I before I left, I did get it in, get the idea in my head to just go on a long through hike. And I had never done that before. And it was really just ill planned but I, I walked from the edge of Seoul to the ocean I just thought oh that'd be nice wow. it's, on the map it's not very far it took a couple of days I think maybe two days to walk from the city to the uh, to the ocean on the east coast wow I did that with yeah another gentleman and yeah so that was a lot of fun just walking all day eating at these rural um, shacks meeting people along the way and just talking and thinking mm. Are, is there anything you notice about uh, the culture of these people who are you're interacting with? Like, is there a, a specific type of happiness you see in them? Or is there a way that they look at the world that you sort of could reflect on now or remember about that? I think what I noticed when I was there was, and it kind of surprised me, I feel like when I see kids talking <laughs> with each other and just young kids, they're having such interesting and deep and involved conversations. And I don't remember having these kinds of conversations as a kid. So when I see so many of these young people um, just engaged and having these complex conversations and being so aware of their surroundings and maybe even what's going on, like you said, in politics and all that, I never followed politics. I never read the news growing up. I, was, I felt very isolated and yeah, just disconnected growing up. So when I saw that in these kids, these city kids, um, that that really impressed me. 
I also saw a lot of the pressure, the cultural pressure over there to achieve and perform academically, professionally. So there is a lot of social pressure there that I don't feel as much here, uh, which is a blessing. Um, but yeah, those are some big differences that come to mind. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, could, would you be willing to continue on once you come back here actually from your time in Korea? Yeah, so I attended grad school and that was around the time of the financial crisis. So it was very mm -hmm. difficult to find work after, after graduating. Um, I did end up getting an internship back in Korea. So I was like, oh, interesting. Um, let's go back. I wanted to go back anyway. So I took that internship. It turned into a full-time position out there. And that was for a, a multinational company consulting company that had a young office. So I did, oh. I was able to use my English as, as a consultant working on HR type projects with multinational companies, mm -hmm. but um, there wasn't enough work. Um, I was there for about nine months, I'd say, and uh, had to leave. Uh, my Korean wasn't good enough to be like a full-time consultant working with Korean clients. So there wasn't enough multinational work for me to stay there. And then from that point, I kind of hopped around a little bit took little projects at different places, one at the university in Seoul, but ended up coming back to the U.S. looking full-time work. And yeah, that, there was a big gap there. I, I want to say close to two years, I was looking for work. I, I think a lot of people were looking for work at that time. Yeah, my father like was in that same boat. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably the hardest time in my life, I can, if I can think back emotionally, um, yeah, mental state, mindset-wise, very difficult, but also I grew tremendously in that time. Could you and reflect maybe on what what helped you overcome that adversity and grow past that? I think, to be honest, it was my faith that got me through that. And so my faith really strengthened in that time, even though, um, yeah, I was applying for jobs and not, nothing was coming back. It, it was faith in... I guess God's plan for me and that he would provide eventually when the time was right, that got me through day to day. I took a lot of walks in that time. I, I read a lot. I listened, I got into podcasts, I think at that time. So uh, there was a lot of, I discovered interests I didn't have. I discovered interest in philosophy, um, thinking critically in, in these areas that I hadn't explored before. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's carried on since then. If you don't mind me asking, uh, who is maybe your favorite philosopher and a philosopher that you are recently exploring their works? So I have to say, like, I'm not a big reader okay. um, anymore. So I don't read particular philosophers, but I, like I said, I listen to a lot of podcasts and um, on philosophical topics. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the philosophers I came across are related to uh, like Christianity Mm. So people like Alvin Plantinga, I think he's probably famous in a lot of other fields. Um, but William Lane Craig, I think, is a more popular philosopher that I, I enjoy listening to. Sure. So the area like Christian apologetics and how philosophy, um, philosophical thinking goes into Christianity and the defense of Christianity and thinking through like yeah, the, the theology of Christianity. Mm. I like that. Very nice. Very nice. So you're applying to jobs. You're exploring yourself a lot internally. Where do you end up coming out of this experience? Yeah. So the first job I got after that period was at a startup in New York City. It was a, a lending uh, lending startup that they lent to small businesses. Mm. So I was there for about a year. Um, it was a very unpleasant experience, very uh, difficult work environment but um yeah it was the experience i needed to go to the next thing i actually quit that job before just before i got married because i couldn't take it anymore um so i did get married in that time um, and then landed a job like i guess the first proper job um, at american express and that's where i guess my career kind of formally started uh, within like the corporate world sure what was your uh work schedule like or like some of the details of project tasking wise while working there uh, at the startup or at american express at american express at amex i was on the marketing operations team so i was helping marketers and package their campaigns within the different systems internally and then those were those would launch into the public and so when 
when people got their letters in the mail or they got their emails marketing them to get a new credit card or upgrade or whatever um, all of that technology that goes behind those marketing uh, campaigns sure. uh, were set up by our team so those that was kind of work we did and then while i was there actually um, i decided to make a shift career-wise into more product management and that's where that's where i'm now but Understood. yeah that was where i took a lateral move to go in this direction and yeah i think that's kind of when i found out what i really wanted to do it was okay. really probably in my early 30s that I decided, okay, I, I like product management. I like software, designing and building and thinking about software as a way to solve problems. And that's where, yeah, where I've been for the last seven or eight years. That's fascinating. So what, what do you think are the best skill sets or the most uh, universally applicable lessons you've learned from being a project manager? Well, some of the learnings I'm, I'm experiencing now is product management has a lot to do with teamwork. So you can have a lot of really talented, gifted people on the team, but without um, leadership, really, and guidance and uh, definition of what needs to be done, it's very difficult for even a very talented team to, to build things efficiently and build the right things. So mm. I'm getting a, a more, a deeper appreciation for the role of, um, I guess, leadership in um, helping a team achieve its full potential and really work well together and uh, smoothly to build things yeah, effectively and build the right things in the right way. Mm. I like that. Yeah, no, I think that's so key oftentimes is like, you know, there's so many different types of leadership styles, but at the end of the day, as, as long as you can make sure that you're building the cohesion of your team and doing it in a way where it's an open and collaborative environment, but the task at hand is being achieved, I, I think that's extremely uh, effective for a leader to be able to do. Um, with working on your project management, what's been the most successful project you guys have completed or task that you're like extremely proud of that you've worked on? Well, my jobs have all been within companies and uh, working on like internal or external facing applications. But to be honest, I'm not super proud of anything I've worked on at, at these employers. Um, personally, on the side, I've built uh, my own business, custommobile.app is the domain. Um, that I'm quite proud of. It's taken a couple of years to get it to this point, but it started as a, a product business. Um, I'm sorry. There's a oh, okay. just talking to me a second. No, it's closed. <laughs> yeah. Um, you can cut that out, hopefully. Oh no, you're totally cool. I I might, maybe not. We'll see. Comedic effect. <laughs> okay. Um, what was I saying? Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, the the business actually started as a product company. I was building a software product, like an app, uh, a podcast app. Sure. Um, that listeners could listen to podcasts, but also interact with the shows inside the app. So it'd be like a social podcast app. That's how it started. I learned a lot through that process, but eventually had to pivot the business toward what it is now, which is more of an agency and helping content creators and podcasters build apps for themselves. So it's more of a, a white labeled agency model rather than building our own app and, and launching that and spreading that in the world. Mm, that's that's super fascinating. What what I guess first gave you the inspiration to work on this project at all in general? Um, so I've been interested, like I said, in product design and, and building things for myself for a long time. I'd, I'd say since grad school, I've been thinking about building my own products. Um, I got into podcasting or listening to podcasts, I want to say, just around that time as well. And so my personal it kind of came from a personal need, a personal desire to interact with the shows I was listening to, but also share very, very easily clips of episodes that I was listening to with family and friends. Sure. Even now, it's, it's pretty difficult to do that. Um, but what, eight years ago, or yeah, maybe five or five to eight years ago, it was really difficult. There wasn't an option out there. And so that's, that was the initial impetus for me, thinking about it and designing something that would help listeners take clips of episodes and share them really easily right from the app, their listening app itself. Um, and then also interact with the shows 
Mm. I, I like that idea too, because I, I tend to do that too, or I'll like, what I do now is I'll just like, uh, find the, find the video, send the link and then give a timestamp is like the most effective way to, to share a podcast, I feel like, but that's really interesting. So what, what made you as an entrepreneur understand that, okay, I need to pivot this product a little bit and turn and turn into sort of where we're helping others create their application. It was a combination of things. So, um, I, I learned throughout the process just, just how expensive it is to build your own product, but not only build it, but maintain it. And it's very capital intensive for an individual or a small team, a small founding team, me and my, my co-founder. It wasn't financially viable for us to be doing that, uh, maintaining a platform going forward. Uh, so there was a cost element to it. And there was also a market element to it while we were building the app and we hired an agency to help us do that. Um, I did see other social podcast apps come and then fail in the market just again and again. And I saw other more dominant apps add social features into their apps, but these features were not being very used very much. And that gave me, that kind of brought me to the point where I realized, okay, I'm building the wrong thing. It's not going to be used. Um, even if I built it, it's not going to succeed. So I came to a hard decision uh, around March or February of last year, just around when COVID was, was kind of coming in. And I decided I'll, I've got to figure something else out. And that's when I thought, well, we have this technology. Can we white label it to help podcasters at least um, make mobile apps for themselves? And so that's where, where the idea began. We did some validation and testing for a couple of months and then uh, actually for like half a year. And then we rebranded and launched in January of this year, custommobile.app. That's fantastic. And do you have any clients so far? How has the experience been going? We've got a number of clients. I want to say maybe around 45 clients. Nice. So still pretty small. Uh, we're not breaking even at, the, at this point, but hoping to break even in the next couple of months. Um, it is mostly myself. I do have a, a tech co-founder, but uh, right now it's mostly myself managing everything from the marketing to the uh, lead generation to onboarding clients, customer service. It's yeah, I'm doing everything. Wow. That's probably, it's probably really intensive. I'm sure your daily schedule is pretty rigorous then. Yes. I have very little time for anything else. Cause I also have a full-time job as well. Oh so this gosh. is a side project that I'm, I'm working on the side to hopefully build up and supplement our income and yeah, just sure. build up into a proper business. I like that. I like that. Um, did you bootstrap this project? How much do you have invested in the project? Um, if you don't mind me asking or if you would. Yeah, we did bootstrap it. Um, I asked family and friends for help. Mm. So we did we did um, get some investment, very, um, I want to say maybe around 30 to 35,000 in investment from family and friends. And then the rest uh, we borrowed and I'm kind of embarrassed at how much I borrowed. Borrowing really from credit cards, to be honest with you. So it was very risky and I sure. wouldn't do it this way again, but using credit cards and maxing them out. And uh, I think probably in total, if you combined all the money um, that we borrowed from credit cards and emptying my 401k as well, mm-hmm. well over $100,000 to build uh, this app, which never actually launched. Uh, so it's a very, it was a very expensive education for sure. sure. Um, and Definitely. still paying, paying those loans off with the revenue from the agency business. But... Yeah, that's the goal to build up the agency business to the point where we can really break even, mm-hmm. make those loan payments, and then continue building it to uh, to generate profit going forward. Very nice. What is your favorite part about working on a custom mobile app now? I love the learning aspect of it. It's uh, I, I learned so much through the project. I really can't regret the time and the expense that's gone into it. It's growing me as a person, just learning how to deal with people. I'm not a people person by nature. I'm not an extrovert by nature. So being forced to reach out to potential clients and customers, talk to them over the phone, um, serve them as they become clients and just interact with them every single day. Mm-hmm. That's been really stretching for me. Learning how to how to market the business, all of that is brand new to me. Like, how do you get the word out on your business. And I guess as a podcaster, it's the same thing. You're, you've built the product. 
how do you get the word out about your product to the rest of the world? How do you get in front of your potential listeners, your potential audience? Mm-hmm. All of these things I just learned by doing and, and there's no other way to learn. So I'm thankful for the opportunity that, that this project gives me to learn these skills in a real world setting. Yeah. So, is there a common correlation you notice among uh, podcasters and specifically among your clients? I do. I think my clients tend to be more business minded, so they see their their shows not just as a show that they're producing and spreading into the world, but they're looking at their show as maybe an on ramp to a business. So they're thinking about how do I turn this show into a business that pays for itself but also might be a platform to build uh, a bigger content business, maybe including video or written content, but they're thinking more business minded. Sure. Um, yeah. So that's what I'm seeing. Okay. Very nice. Yeah. I, I, I guess I would, uh, from my personal experience, I would say I'm starting to do the same thing in, in the way that I'm observing and interacting with the platforms of social media, as well as how I'm communicating. Um, but that's fascinating. Yeah, I've never, I, I guess for me, my my whole take on it is I love the idea of just like openly discussing and allowing that that uh, experience of connecting with another human to sort of guide a conversation and allow the learnings to be discerned by the listener. And I, I find that my format is very, very free-flowing in that style. But that's very, that's very unique. I, I have never thought about uh, taking my format and, and making it and saying, how can I build the business model out of the format? That's, that's really unique to see as a correlation. Yeah. Uh, no, as I hear you speak, conversations are the way that you know, human beings have learned from each other since the beginning of time. Right. And I do, I still think it's the best way to learn, to talk to somebody. And um, what I realized was like talking is actually thinking you're, mm. you're fully activated when you're having a conversation you're thinking on the fly and you're exploring new territory together as you're speaking out loud. You just can't replace that really by, um, with any other method or means. Um, and as you do more of these conversations, I'm sure you're just going to get better and better at these. Like Joe Rogan, I'm sure has had thousands and thousands of conversations oh, yeah. and he's, Beast. he's now a master at, uh, delving into the, the subject matter expertise of his guests and to be able mm. to, um, pull those out follow lines of thought and pull insights out it, that itself is an art and a science in itself and yeah I, you're going to get there and i'm sure yeah you're definitely much further along in that skill set than than i am or will probably ever be well thank you that's that's very humbling to hear you say that but i definitely understand and reflect that i'm growing every day like the best part i think too is the fact that i do all my editing So like when you get to hear something back and you get to do that retention process of like, there's parts of a conversation because I'm in the moment so much I'm listening to that I go back and listen. I'll be like, whoa, I completely missed this verbiage or this concept because in the moment I was focused on a different concept of that strain of thought. So that's been really exciting for growing as a a speaker and as someone who gives questions. Um, I wanted to ask, what is your perception on the idea of free will? Do you believe we have free will or do you believe that it's just something we perceive? I do. I believe we do have genuine free will. Yeah. I don't believe in a deterministic, um, yeah, that our free will is determined by like our, uh, the physical processes. Um, yeah, the physics going on in our brains. Sure. That's fantastic. Cool. Thank you for sharing. I'm, I love just, you know, asking, exploring the brain. Let's see where, where things go. How is your current thoughts on technology? Um, couple things one a social media actually um can we go back to that question because i find it fascinating what's your view on that are you do you also believe in genuine free will or are you a determinist yeah no thank you for asking um i i i don't know i think i have a very i have an interesting perception i i believe that free will is actually a perceived thing i believe that there. I think that our brains can cognitively, I don't know, it's kind of selfish of me to think that the idea that we as a society or as a creature are so powerful that the choice we make was clearly ours when I think there's so much that's happening out there and so many mechanisms of this world that we have yet to discover. So my sort of my concept on it is I think we have a perceptive free will, right? I think there's a couple different paths that are in front of you, but no matter what's laid out in front of you, one of them was actually going to be the one that was meant to be at the end of the day. 
And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, I it's something that's, I think, really interesting, especially as I explore further into spirituality and sort of coming to terms with what I believe that is. And I'm starting to do that by exploring a, um, a lot of philosophers. So I'm starting with a little bit with Friedrich Nietzsche. I want to see um, sort of that existentialism. I want to go down mm-hmm. that um, atheist route, see what that perception is. And then I also uh, recently I've been studying a little bit of Buddhism. Uh, I I studied, you know, Mahayana, some Theravada Buddhism. I got into that world Um, and I was, I've just been so excited. And my biggest thing is I, I try and contemplate and reflect so often on the idea of humbling myself and and recognizing that humans have uh, cognitive abilities to feel like selfish tendencies in all of the emotional landscape and aspects that we explore. And so I, I don't know, I just feel like there's so much that is yet to be discovered in the world. And the world is so expansive in its, in its uh, yeah. existence that maybe free will for me is something that's, uh, yeah, just perceived. I don't know. That's sort of my, can I follow that thread just a little bit? So sure. um, when you say perceived free will, I think you're saying that free will is an illusion. It's, it's a useful fiction, but in reality, mm. uh, it's, we don't genuinely have the ability to make real choices those choices are determined by the physics going on in our heads if that's the case um, maybe a question would be um then how do you hear that that sounds to me like that view on rationality itself so what i when i think about a proposition or a belief being a rational belief sure that implies to me or that in to me that involves the uh making a decision to believe that belief whatever it is Mm. based on reasons like i'm believing to believe this thing this proposition because of the reasons um that i have for it sure so it seems to me that rationality uh, requires genuine free will. And if free will is not real, if our beliefs and choices are, then it seems to me that uh, there are no truly rational beliefs. There are no rational, they're all determined. That's the case. Even if that I don't have is itself an irrational belief, if you can follow that. So just to kind of go back, it seems to me that the belief free will is an illusion, self an irrational belief. That's, I guess, in a nutshell, why I think there's something there. Did mm-hmm. you follow that? I did. Oh, that's so fascinating. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's boil. It was boiling down more of the metaphysics of the I of how I got to the concept and understanding that that yeah, I do see that that tendency that I think I do do that too. It, and I think that might be part of my twenties and my intellectual curiosity is I always try and ration and deduce every single topic. Um, and I do see that that does lead my thought process a lot. You know, that's fascinating. I've never boiled it down that way because no one's ever pressed me on that topic. So th- thank you for that. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a really fascinating like just topic to think about like um, just rationality itself. Free will required for rationality, and my and my opinion is yes, you need you need free will um, to make any rational uh, decision, including the the decision to believe in anything. So if you don't have it, it kind of undermines rationality. Mm. So yeah, maybe I, something I, to chew on. Yeah, definitely. This is something that, oh, when I go back and I reflect, I always take notes of things that for me to personally go back, meditate on, sit on and think on. That's definitely, I already highlighted that on my paper. Um, Following this thread too, uh, with free will, and I guess, what is your thoughts on the simulation theory that our whole existence could be potentially simulated? Um, Because I think that too also ties heavily into my conceptualization my oh no mm. my conception of how i get to my free will thinking yeah i mean i think i've heard of, heard of something like that um how do you know you're not what a brain in a vat right and um everything you're experiencing or you're, you're in the matrix right that's mm. basically the thought experiment i mean i guess it's possible sure like like anything is possible but sure. it's not 
I don't see how that affects how I'm going to live my day to day. So what do you think are the implications of, I mean, if, if we're in a simulation and there were some way to validate that, sure. um, I guess it depends on, there are more questions that come out of that. Like, does that mean meaningless or purposeless? It, it depends on a simulation. Who, whose simulation is it? And do I have free will within the simulation? Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's sort of, that's the concept is like how if, if humans are able to with, with our ability, be able to like create quantum computing, create computing and be able to generate stuff itself. Why couldn't there be something larger that actually could have potentially generated all of this? I mean, even with the concept of we now see um, there's labs in, in the world that are, you know, trying to develop black holes on earth. And so if we're able to use the, powers we have as we continue to increase our intellectual awareness of technology why couldn't it be perceived that there is potentially and who knows maybe what if it is potentially god who is the one who is actually controlling the end-all be-all simulation but the fact that maybe maybe i don't know i like the idea that i think it's fascinating that it could potentially not co not exist as the religion but coexist with religion and that potentially what if the questioning on is this a simulation is not rather is it is it a simulation versus a spirituality thing with with a god but rather is a god using a simulation to keep everything going as it is um, yeah i don't think that's too far off from the i mean the current christian understanding of creation like god mm. created reality um, i don't see that being as too far off what we're talking about like we are living in a simulation we are living in living in a creation and there is a creator and if in the case of a simulation there is a an engineer who has created the simulation so I, yeah, i'm not seeing too big of a distance between those two ideas sure this is fascinating is i want to i'm not i haven't really explored much of christianity could you maybe from your perspective what is what are some takeaways or some fascinating things that I might be able to learn um, from your perspective on the lens of Christianity? Okay. No one's ever asked me that question. So I'm just going to do the best I can, I guess. Sure. Yeah, think, no. And thank, thank you for being able to have this uh, vulnerable and open of a conversation. It's oh, no problem at all. Yeah. It's a privilege. Yeah. I think for me, the main distinction between Christianity and everything else, like all the other worldviews out there mm. uh, is um, it is the anti-performance-based worldview. So like everything, in everything else in life and in every other religion, it's all about your performance. Like you have to achieve salvation with good works. Um, in, in the workplace, yeah, you, you're judged based on your performance. You have performance reviews and uh, everything else, right? You've got to follow the rules in order to get to heaven and earn your way your salvation is earned. But I think Christianity is different in, is in that your, your salvation is received. It's not earned. Um, I think there's a pithy phrase I'm trying to remember. It's, uh, well, it's grace-based. It's um, Christianity is the only worldview where you're saved, not by earning it, but by receiving it as a gift. And so the only requirement is to admit that you can't save yourself. So it, in that way, it's got this humble or humility at the center yeah. of, of its view of salvation. Whereas in everything else, um, there is a, maybe a self-actualization or a performance-driven motive at the center of every other worldview. That's mm. kind of the way I see it. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Um, I'm thinking of it um, distinctly as a, when I'm thinking about Buddhism, right? The idea that there is internal suffering and that they give you a, usually in, Buddh in some formats of Buddhism, depending on the ones you subscribe to, there is a path to yep. overcoming mm -hmm. the suffering and achieving it. But I get what you're That's saying. Right. It's flipping that whole concept on its head. And hmm, wow, that kind of gave yeah. me goosebumps because I... I, I think one of the most powerful things, there's two powerful things for a human. I think one of them is 
humbleness because humbleness allows you to recognize and to be conscious and aware. But I think the second thing too is we love having some sort of structure or rules because it allows Mm -hmm. us to like grow and push ourselves. So how does that concept of, I guess, having some sort of structure or rule base play then in Christianity, Mm -hmm. if the whole concept Mm -hmm. is receiving instead of achieving? Yeah, so that's a great question too. Just just taking a step back to um, you talking about paths and yeah, everything, every other system will give you like a path, how to achieve this or that. They'll give you um, uh, rules or maybe like the 10 commandments or um, the fourfold path or whatever it is. There's always these rules to follow to achieve nirvana or salvation or um, the end goal. And like you said, in Christianity, the only requirement is to admit that you can't earn your way and just to receive God's yeah, love as a free gift. So that's the requirement. The only structure then that follows from that, from that exchange, or not exchange, but when you receive love from somebody yeah. uh, and you love that person in return, there are guidelines around that relationship. It's a relationship. It's not... Uh, like a 10-step plan. And so when I think about uh, the friendships in my life or even my my marriage, these love relationships have structure around them. Um, I'm not going to do things that are going to hurt my wife or hurt my friends. So there are these, there are rules, but they're rules governed by and driven by love. So I think that's, that's the way that in Christianity um, it's framed. Like the only, the only law or the two laws um, that are given by Jesus is like, you love God with all your heart, mind and strength. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. So love is the law that Christians follow. And it's not like a defined 10 step program or, you know, pray these many times a day in this direction or wear these clothes, eat this food. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's much simpler in that way, but also much more difficult to keep. Mm. That's fascinating. I, that's unique too. Like that idea that if you actually boil it down to a much more simplistic idea of just focusing on the love, the autonomy of focusing on that will allow the rest of the sort of idea that the rules are there come into play and will build that structure of the relationship. Exactly. Yeah. You don't need any of the other rules. If you're, if, if you love somebody and you're loving them properly, you don't need any other laws. Like if we all loved each other, we right. wouldn't need laws, right? So. Right, yeah, because then uh, technically anarchy wouldn't really be there. You can live in an anarchist society without anarchy if everyone loved each other. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. Huh, very interesting. Uh, what do you believe is the meaning of happiness? Uh, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. <laughs> so I think... Um, so here's a phrase that I came up with last night. Um, the secret to the secret to satisfaction is not self-actualization, but self-submission. I think that's the phrase I came up with. So I believe the only way to be truly happy is to submit ourselves to God and to receive his love as a free gift. That I think is the secret to it. And it's also the hardest thing to do, mm. but... Yeah, I think that's at the core. Um, I think the the seed or the core of all the unhappiness I see in the world, I think boils down to people trying to achieve their own um, what self-worth. They're trying to earn their own self-worth through achievement, through performance, mm. through, um, yeah, good work, whatever, however you want to define that. And it's the burden of self-actualizing their potential that is crushing people uh, and leading to unhappiness. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I think I'm in a similar boat, whereas I, I, I do believe happiness is when you, when you give up your personal selfish intentions and start living with a, the purpose of just being there and giving good energy to others and just existing in a, in a space and an atmosphere in which highlights um, gratitude and uh, unity with the people and the space and everything that's existing around you. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, you used a couple of words there that I, I find really fascinating. You used the word, I think, purpose and gratitude. Uh, maybe you used the word meaning. So I've thought about meaning and purpose uh, maybe a couple of months ago back. And sure. people use that all the time. Like, I want my life to have meaning and have a purpose. But for me, when I think about those those words, I feel like meaning only comes once you define a purpose. So if there is a purpose to your life, a given a purpose, then your actions can be meaningful toward that purpose. Mm. And when I, in my worldview, God gives every one of his children a purpose in life. The purpose is to love him and love your neighbor, to keep it simple. And therefore, everything you do is meaningful toward that purpose. But for folks who don't have a, uh, what would you call it? A, um, like a foundation for their home? Or a theistic, like a theistic worldview. If you don't have a God in your worldview, where do you derive a purpose? Maybe like an objective purpose that would make everything else in your life meaningful. Sure, so that's, that's a question. I think I think people who might be thinking in that mentality would probably say that they would drive their their purpose from a selfish, internal, intrinsic value. Then at that point, wouldn't they? You'd have to make something up. I mean, the whole cultural thing is um, you define the purpose for your own life. Like, it's up to you to define your own purpose. Sure. But that's very, very difficult. I don't know how people do that. And um, if you decide one day I'm going to make this the purpose of my life, uh, well, I don't know how realistic it is for that to stick and for you to live uh, live your your life according to that. I just think it's very difficult. And I think a lot of people are feeling the effects of trying to define their own purpose um, and maybe failing at that and not knowing where to turn. John, this is the first time ever that someone has pushed me to think of the demise and the, the terrible aspects of social media in a different way. I don't think of it now, I guess, as being... Well, it, it still does these things. It's still highlighting the, the, the highlight reel of people's lives. And so intrinsically, you're comparing yourself to that part of them. But now I'm starting to think of it as is the reason that I think social media can be so unhealthy is it's making you feel even more like you don't have a sense of purpose because you haven't been able to discover it yet. And you're being distracted by highlights of what you might believe or perceive as someone else's purpose. Yeah. No, I think we're always being advertised to in terms of your purpose should be this or that and your purpose should be to be rich or your purpose mm. should be to be a successful professional your, your purpose should be to be beautiful whatever it is you're always being marketed to so we're always being pulled in these in these different directions and if you follow one of these with some level of commitment you'll find that it's often yeah it's just too difficult i mean mm. <laughs> you're always going to fail and these Purposes, you can call them, we're all living for something, right? We're living toward something. We have to define something, whether consciously or subconsciously, to follow something. And then it becomes oppressive, whatever that is, whatever that goal is, or that aspiration is, or that idol is, in the end, uh, it crushes you. It asks you to make sacrifices for it. And we sacrifice our time, our energy, our emotional and mental health for it. And in the end, we can never achieve it. Um, and if and when you can achieve it, when you cannot achieve it, I mean, it it crushes you. It never forgives you. And when you do achieve it, you find that it doesn't satisfy you. So it's it's like a a lose lose situation that a lot of us are trapped in. Is the way that I see it. Sure. So John, uh, how would you like one sentence clear as day define your purpose, and then? What are some, I guess, uh, examples of action steps in your actual way that you live that would highlight that? Yeah. So I mentioned before, my purpose is the purpose of every Christian is to love God and love my neighbor as myself. Mm -hmm. That's my purpose. And the action step is to treat the people in my life, my friends, my family, my neighbors, and love them as best I can every day. Mm -hmm. um, one way I do that is to stop working <laughs> at five o'clock and devote my mind and attention and time to my family and my friends. So that's one way that I try to, to serve them in that way and not let work 
uh, which I think for men is a, is a big idol. Um, let work overtake one's life and have too much sway and power over our hearts and minds. Truly, because I, it's funny that you say that. I came from a household where I faced a lot of adversity. You know, there was verbal abuse, there was physical abuse, there was a lot of great things. Though my parents were fantastic, I wouldn't change um, a thing about the way I was raised. But I found that so much of me escaped through school and through work that it became almost like I thought that was my sense of purpose. And it wasn't actually until recently when I just got out of a relationship and realized that. I had, I had even clearly stated during the relationship that the most important thing in my life was work when really it was the financial stability of making sure that you have money, making sure that you can live and, and, and be that way. And it wasn't until I was out of that relationship and I was starting to have more emotional quandaries with where am I finding my happiness? Where is what brings me stability? And that I realized that my work no longer was that and that I, I I actually just had that realization and I think it's I think men when we're that concept of we emotionally suppress things or like we're not supposed to cry or all these other very masculine based things I think that is also in turn shown up in the way that we uh, are emotionally handling and dealing with this idea that work must be the most important thing yeah I'm sorry I missed some of that just because the connection went out but I think I, I heard that work used to be um like an idol for you and then you, you recently realized that it wasn't the work itself but maybe the financial security that comes from work that that was really driving you and yeah. so it's the um maybe it was the insecurity of um yeah feeling like you don't have enough money that was driving you to overwork true for you what is the most important aspect or characteristic of being a good partner and to maintain um, stability in your relationship with your spouse? Most important part. Uh, well, I, I think tactically, one of the lessons I've learned after being married is to try to never complain. So you will, I will want to complain a lot, but to hold back and not complain, I think, I think goes a long way in like preserving and, uh, making a marriage better and better over time. Because um, com- uh, complaining doesn't change anybody is something that I've learned. And also the, it, it kind of goes into my faith as well. I also believe that over time, God is going to work on my spouse as well as just the way he's working on me. So there's a, an aspect of faith there as well. I can be patient and I can hold back criticism because I trust in the God who is also working in my spouse as he's working in myself. Mm. So that, yeah, that's, that's what comes to mind. It's so funny because reflecting, reflecting on Christianity from this um, received and, you know, accepting perspective on it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's making it really, really fascinating to, Oh, screw it. Dang. I just lost this thought. Like to explore, uh, to explore that, that was it to explore the temperance in the religion. Mm. I feel like my personal experience with the people around me who subscribed Christianity has been so, mm, it's, it's been very chaotic and lively because I think there's passion involved often, but for me, like that's not the most understanding way to try and recognize something. And I, I find mm. this tempered perspective on it um, very warming, very, very, very uh, new and exciting. Yeah, I think I hear you. So you're saying when you've talked to other, other Christians, it's been quite um, like heated, the conversation. Mm. Um, whereas maybe the way I'm, com- I'm talking about it is maybe less passionate or more dispassionate. <laughs> no, no, it's still, no, but I, I think there's something to that. I think people get sure. angry when they feel, um, what insecure. And, um, if you have doubts, right. Yourself, sometimes people compensate for those doubts with more passion and more heat mm-hmm. uh, and aggression. So I can see that like, um, I feel like I've worked through a lot of the questions that I used to have. And so I don't feel as, um, what's the word, like insecure about what I believe because I kind of thought through why I believe what I believe. Yeah, I'm not sure a lot of people have done that. 
what was your what was your belief system in general? I know you probably won't know all the specifications in your twenties. What was your belief system like and how did you see it growing or what did, what, what have you now gotten rid of in your belief system? What have you changed about that? Or I guess what, what in your maturing and aging has shifted about your mentality? So what have I learned? Um, as I've grown older, <laughs> um, I think one thing I've learned actually, as I've grown older is that people seem to always feel young. Like even though I'm headed toward 40 now, I still feel like a teenager. And I, I think that's true for people who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s. I think when I'm 70, I'm still gonna feel like a child and just maybe not as insecure, but still so, I'm gonna feel young. And I think that's something I didn't realize when I was younger, that older people feel young, even though they look old, Right. They still feel, a lot of people feel insecure and um, scared and intimidated by younger people, even when they've, they're in their 60s and 70s and have accomplished so much. Mm. Uh, people don't get over their insecurities that easily, that quickly. And um, yeah, there are a lot of people who are grandmothers and grandfathers who feel as nervous and as uh, maybe shy as... I do sometimes and, and as, as I did when I was younger. So that, that was something new that I've recognized as I've gotten older. Mm. That's fascinating that, you know, that makes me, there's one thing that I was, when I was really younger, I, 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 I had so much like pent up anger in me and I always wanted everyone around me to be just as mature or more mature than me because I always like thought I was the, I had a very narcissistic opinion that I was like the pinnacle of maturity for my age range, which was, that shows you how immature I was. Um, But uh, I, I guess that idea right there, like me and my mom always had a disconnect because she has always done that. She's very, very youthful, very energetic, very um, curious in a childlike sense to just explore, have fun, be with people, communicate, doing all those things. And I had, I had such a disconnect from wanting to be that way. I was like, no, I want to be what I thought was being an adult, which was just really being more like academic based and just sort of like being a bit of a recluse. And mm. it's, it's so fascinating because I, I can tell in the way that you talk and in the way that you're processing each of these thoughts, there is a true sincerity to the reflection that you've had on these physical words and concepts where moreover, and as the reason I do this show even is like, I'm starting to explore and even just dip my toes in what the breadth and depth of each of these words that we're describing and how, how much more vivid they become in their, in their um, perception. And I just, I appreciate your um, openness and, and it's been, it's been extremely fascinating. I, I, I can tell that there's a sense of exploration and internal discovery you've done that I don't think a lot of people maybe have had is there do you meditate or do you do is it just spending time outside in nature how how do you think you've gotten to such a reflective point in your life yeah and i'm gonna have to uh, make this the last question chat just sure. i got it back to work but um i do think um one practice i do has helped me and i'm gonna continue it for the rest of my life is the first thing i do when i wake up after i've washed up and everything is to uh, maybe go outside and I, I I read my Bible for a little bit and I journal about what I'm reading, what I'm thinking about, what comes to mind. Um, I do write down a couple of things I'm thankful for each day mm-hmm. just to exercise that gratitude muscle. I do think it's a muscle that needs to be exercised so that my mind can more readily um, jump to things I'm thankful for throughout the day. It's not you know, a terrible effort. And I think gratitude is, is another secret to happiness. If you, you can't be thankful and unhappy at the same time. So exercising that muscle really helps keep uh, my mindset in the right place. And then, yeah, I pray. So there's like a maybe half an hour every morning where I, I go through this kind of ritual for myself. And I've done it for a long time, probably since I was a teenager. Uh, I think wow. that's, that's gone a long way to keeping me reflective and thinking through what's important, getting my head on straight. Sure. It hasn't always been in the morning either, but um, I've always tried to set aside a little bit of time for that purpose to um, spend time with God and um, thinking through the important things that uh, I want to keep in front of my mind. 
Very nice. Thank you for sharing that. I like to, before we finish up here, is there anything you would like to plug any uh, media outlets, any places people can check you out that you'd like to share? Yeah. So the only website I have is for my side business and that's custommobile.app. So if you'd like to explore what we're doing, we make custom branded apps for content creators. You can find us there. And yeah, I love having these conversations. I mean, Chad, this is the best conversation I've had in probably months. And I wish I had the time to do more of these because it's like, it's like my second or first passion is to have these kinds of deep philosophical conversations. I wish I could have them all the time. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, th- thank you, really, John. You've you've both opened my eyes. You've pushed me as a interviewer, and it's it's just been it's been a fortunate privilege for me also to have this dialogue with you. So thank you. Yeah, and anytime if you want to do it again, you can just yeah call me, and I'll be up for another conversation anytime. <laughs> oh, same here, anytime. All right, there you have it, folks. This has been another edition of a humanistic perspective. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, stay working hard, love your life, and we'll catch you later. <laughs>